Welcome to the Luminous Podcast, weekly meditations, readings, and blessings to assist with our rest, peace, and spiritual wellness. You can find out more at LuminousAnglican.com. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, it is really good to be with all of you this morning, and thanks to uh, Chad for the kind and warm invitation uh, to allow me to give the homily this morning to entrust you to me and me to you. Um, I would like to begin my sermon with a little bit of an imaginative exercise. So imagine with me, if you will, that you live in the ancient city of Carthage, in what is today the North African city of Tunis in Tunisia. The year is 220 AD. The emperor Antonius sits on the throne, and the African theologian Tertullian, who is a local, has just died. And the memory of the martyrdom of Felicitas and Perpetua 17 years before is still fresh for your community. Now you have been preparing for three years to be baptized. Three years. Over the past 40 days, you have fasted from meat and wine. You have kept all night vigils. You have visited the poor and the widows and the orphans. The night before your baptism, your bishop, breathed on your face as a sign against the devil. He anointed you with oil on your forehead, your ears, and your nostrils. And he placed salt on your tongue in order to remind you that you will be the salt of the earth. And now today is Easter morning, the day of your baptism, and the time is dawn. Standing in an antechamber with members of the same gender, you take off all of your clothes and you wait for the deacon to call you to the stone font that has been carved into the ground. And in stripping off all of your clothes, you are symbolizing the removal of your old self in order to receive the new self promised to you in Jesus' resurrection. If you are a woman, then a female deacon will perform the entire rite in the place of the pastor. Standing in the water, naked, like Jesus himself on the cross, your pastor asks if you renounce the devil and all of his schemes, and you proclaim yes with vigor. Your pastor then immerses you three times in the waters, each time asking if you believe in each person of the Holy Trinity. The font has become your tomb and your womb at the very same time, symbolizing your death and birth. Having been baptized, you step out of the font and your pastor anoints you again with oil. He makes the sign of the cross over you. He places his hands upon you and prays that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you with the new life that awaits you in Jesus Christ. You are also given a new set of clothes. You're no longer naked. You're given a white garment 
It symbolizes your life as a child of the light. Your new brothers and sisters in this new family of yours in Jesus, they hug you and they cheer with you. And each gives you a kiss on the cheek as a sign of welcome into the family of God. Your pastor offers you now a cup that includes a mix of milk and honey as a token of your symbolic entrance into the promised land. And for the first time in three years, you share the Eucharistic body and blood with the whole church. Every sense of your body has been included in your baptism, a sense of sight and smell and sound and taste and touch because there is no part of your body that does not get consecrated anew. Dear friends, for the Christians of the early church era, faith was a fundamentally sacramental thing. It was not just about what you thought or felt. It was about what you did with your body. And in giving their bodies wholly to God in baptism, these Christians became freed to offer their bodies wholly to others, to their neighbors in sacrificial love. So in my sermon today, what I'd like to do is offer comments or observations on two parts of the passage that was written, uh, read for us from Romans 6, 1 to 14. On the one hand, what does it mean to count ourselves alive to God in our bodies? And on the other, what does it mean to offer our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God? So first then, count yourself alive to God in your body. At the top of our passage, St. Paul clears up a possible misunderstanding in the mind of his readers. If grace increases where sin increases, doesn't that mean that we can sin more because then wouldn't grace increase all the more? And St. Paul says, not at all. Being under grace doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. If we did that, we would still be living out our old self, our false self warped by sin. Before your baptism, Paul reminds the believers in Rome, your body was enslaved to sin-distorting passions. Sin imprisoned you. It controlled and tyrannized you. It bred death in and throughout your body. But now that you've been baptized, sin no longer owns you. So don't let it master you, Paul urges his readers. The imagery here recalls the language of Genesis 6, 4, 7, where God speaks to Cain after Cain's offering has been rejected. If you keep doing what isn't right, God tells Cain, watch out because sin is crouching at the door and it wants to control you. You must master it before it masters you. Now, I have a first-hand understanding of this impulse when it comes to my lifelong struggle with the vice of anger. It is a vice that I find is embedded in my very body, in my neural synapses, my chemistry, my impulses and instincts. I find that I irritate quickly. I snap at people. I erupt and anger when I feel deeply hurt. I find myself reacting without thinking. 
And I often think to myself, especially when this occurs with my family or close friends, I can't help myself. <laughs> and yet I keep letting anger own me. Your vice, of course, may be different from mine. You may reach instinctively for that extra dessert, or you may take on that extra task because you find yourself addicted to work, or you take that extra drink, or you doom scroll through social media one more time right before bedtime, or you let go out of your mouth one more cynical and negative remark towards one that irritates you, or you say to yourself, I just can't help myself, but you keep doing it, perhaps to numb the pain inside, but the more you do it, the more you feel helpless and hopeless. And Paul reminds us throughout the book of Romans that there is, in fact, help, and there's hope, and a new start, new mercies every morning. Brothers and sisters, when you got baptized, you died to your old self and you came out a new you, a true you. You are no longer the velveteen rabbit. You're a new real rabbit. You're not Gandalf the gray, you're Gandalf the white. You're like a new being. You don't belong to the old order marked by the devastation of sin. You belong to the order marked by the life-giving power of the Spirit of God with more life on the way, more life than you could ever imagine possible. All of which leads to Romans 6.11. Count yourself. Count. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You've got the power of the new creation coursing in your veins. And your body now belongs to the country of grace. So don't let sin rule in your body. Which brings us then to Paul's second point, which follows logically from the first. Because you count yourself alive to God, offer your bodies as righteousness, as instruments of righteousness to God. So the key verb here in Romans 6.13 is the verb to offer. And this is, of course, temple language. It is priest offering sacrifice language. But here in Paul, it's transferred to every body language. Everybody gets to offer their bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. <clears throat> but what exactly does it mean or look like to offer our bodies as instruments of righteousness? That phrase to our ears in Tennessee may sound like a very, very religious phrase. What does it look like? Well, allow me to offer you an example. I have a friend whom I love and admire, and I speak about him often. His name is Tim Deal. I write about him in my Psalms book. I write about him in my book on the body. <laughs> Tim, when I was a pastor at a church in Austin, Texas, a number of years ago, <clears throat> was what I would call the poster child for conservative business student. Think of the most well-mannered, self-controlled, non-charismatic, non-expressive, uh, doctor's pants, uh, light blue button-down shirt, clean haircut, yes ma'am, yes sir. And maybe you are that person here in this room. Uh, 
Think of yourself. So Tim did something at one point in our worship service that surprised all of us. We were a non-denominational church, modestly charismatic. Tim was not from a charismatic world or a charismatic background, and we would have maybe uh, sort of what would be familiar to you as like a 20 or 30 minute extended singing time. One Sunday, he did something <laughs> that was new. And I would love to illustrate it. And I've always asked Tim for permission to illustrate it because it only makes sense if I show you. Um, so I'm gonna step out without a microphone and I'm gonna illustrate it. Now this is what the Christian tradition might call the image of the holy fool. Here it is. So Tim. You know the emoji with the big eyes? That was the whole congregation. We're like, Tim. And he did not do it the next Sunday or the next, but then he did. And then he did it again, and then he didn't do it, and then he did it again. After a few months of it, I actually plucked up the courage to say, Tim, why? I mean, like, what's going on? Like, it's amazing. But um, his answer surprised me. He said he danced not because it came naturally to him. In fact, it was the opposite of what anything might be regarded as natural to his personality. He didn't necessarily do it because he felt like it, like emotionally stirred in the moment. He said, you know, I've been thinking to myself, I'm terrified of how people perceive me. So this is the way that I can control how I'm perceived. And I just felt he was like from the Bible church tradition. So this is not, he's not like a charismatic Holy Spirit talking kind of person. But he's like, I felt like the Holy Spirit stirred in me. Like, this is how you are free from that pernicious, paralyzing fear. I thought, maybe this is my sacrifice of praise. And he's like, if you think I should stop, I'll stop. Because I don't want it to be a distraction. I don't want people to look at me and think anything. I was like, no, I guess a blessing to us. I'll never join you, but it's amazing. <laughs> and in a sense, he was an icon of Romans 6. He offered his body as an instrument to all that was right and good and true about what it means to be a body. And the result of this sacrifice of praise week after week was that it generated new bodily habits and instincts throughout the rest of his life. It freed him to be who God had truly made him to be. Now, for some of us here today, granted at Luminous, the idea of dancing in church sounds mortifying, <laughs> or maybe it just sounds exhausting. The past few years may have left you or me feeling burned out or beaten up or shut down in our bodies. We can barely muster energy to come to church on a Sunday morning and we're definitely not sure if we can do this instruments to righteousness thing that St. Paul is talking about. 
So what do we do? Maybe we can do <laughs> what St. Paul might say to us here today. He would say, start small. Little things. It's those little things that end up bearing a beautiful fruit long term. And I think within the context of Anglican worship, there are marvelous, manifold opportunities for us to experiment with little ways that we can offer our bodies as instruments to righteousness. So let me suggest two, both of which involve your hands. Our hands can do many things in the Anglican liturgical context. Here are two things that they can do. They can be offered up to God, and they can be offered out to God. Allow me to suggest to you that this gesture would be a gesture of humility, and this gesture is a gesture of honor. And with a gesture of humility, for example, in the colic for purity that was read for us earlier this morning, we can say to God something like, Dear Lord, here are my hands. My hands have not actually been given over to all that is good and right and beautiful in this past week, but I offer them to you and make of them what you will. And you offer that in love and in grace. And perhaps in a gesture of honor, maybe during the singing of songs, which you guys led us so wonderfully, maybe what you're saying with your hands is, I'm weary and I'm worn down, but here my hands, I offer them to you and I say, take them and take all of me as I am. And we do these things not simply because they're right and good and true, but because in doing them little by little, week after week, we find ourselves becoming more whole and more wholly alive. Two small things that we might do, that you might do in the weeks to come, maybe here, maybe in another church that you worship in, in your hometown, and discover in the doing them that the grace of God becomes more palpable, feelable in your life. So let me end my sermon today by going back to the third century in North Africa. The sociologist Rodney Starks, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, writes about how Christians of this era did what their non-believer neighbors were unwilling to do. In 251 AD, a horrific plague swept across the Roman Empire. Historians speculate that around a quarter of the population died as a result, which is approximately 80 million Americans dying from COVID. Cyprian, who was a bishop of Carthage at the time, recounts his experience of seeing human carcasses lay in the streets, untouched and rotting. His non-believer, non-Christian neighbors he found that they ran away or they exposed their own friends to the plague, hoping that this might keep death at bay for themselves. But the Christians stayed and they stayed for a reason. They stayed in order to care for the plague victims. They stayed because they knew that death did not have the last word. The resurrection of Jesus Christ did always and forever. They stayed because they had been baptized with Jesus. They stayed because this was the way of Jesus. A bishop at the time, Dionysius of Alexandria in another region of the empire, writes about how Christians cared for the diseased bodies of their neighbors. They nursed them, embraced them, washed them, 
as they died. And when they died, they closed their eyes and mouths and they wrapped them in grave clothes and they buried them. And soon enough, the same service was performed for them at their own deaths. They did these things, dear friends, because they had experienced firsthand the death-defying power of baptism in Jesus Christ. They had experienced a Holy Spirit power that had freed them from sin-distorting passions, and they had experienced the grace of God that had freed them for a life of embodied sacrificial love to their neighbors. Brothers and sisters, here is the good news. Here and here. That power is yours. You too have in your veins the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You too can give away your body to others who need to experience the healing touch of God this day. You and I both get to offer our bodies as instruments of all that is right and true and good. And you may start small, you may start big, you may start at home, at work, or somewhere in between, but wherever you need the power of the risen Jesus to show up in your life today, in and through your body, you've got the Spirit of God on your side and in you, and you've got the body of Christ among you and for you, and you've got the grace of God offered to you over and over again this day. And all you have to do is ask for help. And that grace, that help will come. And so that we do this day, this hour, by God's grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you would like more information or ways to be a part of Luminous, please go to luminousanglican.com. Peace be with you.